Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Directors Club Year End Spectacular. Believe it or not, Patrick and I have been recording this annual tradition for nine years, and it's an honor to be back with Directors Club host Brad Strauss. As you can probably tell, I got a little bit ill after the new year, so I started 2020 not with a bang, but with a blunder of a cold. So please excuse me if I'm not up to snuff here and there. Also, we include another tradition in where each of us chooses our favorite songs of 2019 to play. We kick things off with Patrick's Choice with Bins by Solange, followed by the boss himself with Tucson Train, as chosen by Brad, and the show ends with my favorite track of the year, Not by Big Thief. Thank you all again for your listenership participation, and we hope you'll stay subscribed for the future. And now, on with the show! Happy 2020, everyone! who do not believe in a gender binary we are back it is director's club with the big year-end episode 2019 a year in review and when i say we i am of course talking about me patrick rapal the host of tracks of the damned me jim laskowski host of voices and visions and creator of the now playing network and i brad strauss co-host of the director's club how are we feeling today folks I've been better. Yeah, I you're a, cold. a little. You have a you have a cold. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got through the David Fincher episode way back when we recorded that, and with a very similar voice. The show must go on. I have to do this. I'm so excited you're, you're, because I love the year end. Your mem, <laughs> your memory of, of past episodes we've done is genuinely upsetting. I know you you know way too much. All I remember is Jane Campion. I was just lying on the ground with my eyes closed. <laughs> I, yeah, I remember I would, that too. I did not want to do that episode because I just had nothing to say about Jane Campion. I do have weird, like, uh, yeah, just like, where were we when this episode mm-hmm. was recorded? And I, I do remember those 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 memories because maybe I've listened to the episodes more than once. Maybe. And it's, 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 it's a joy. It's enjoyable. No one should listen to them more than once. I think some once people have. Maybe I think advisable. some people have. How, how are you doing, Brad? Doing good? I'm doing good. It's good to see you guys again. It's good to see you too. We had a blast uh, recording with Al when we did the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood episode, which may or may not come up again. It's yeah. possible. Yeah. It's very possible. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Where have you been, Patrick? Oh, God. Where haven't I been? Bermuda, <laughs> Prague. Um, <laughs> the Edgewater Library. Mostly the Edgewater Library in Willamette. I've, uh, I've been mm. working. I work, uh, I work opening shift at a coffee shop where I have to bake, which means I get there at like 4.30. You do a great job. I've um, seen you in action. Oh, thank you. So at any rate, uh, I have been way too tired and, uh, you know, just busy to record many podcasts or anything. Also, my computer died this year, so I've, I went most of this year without really a computer that could record. Mm. Um, so I, uh, we're, we're getting back on track there. Uh, Tracks of the Damned. It's it's gonna it's the same thing I say every yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every year I don't have a new episode, and I say, you know, you know, I got some stuff in the works. You it's do come back. Yes, exactly. Yes. You got to make them wait for it. 
Yeah, there, there are some. There are going to be some some surprises in store in 2020. Yeah, particularly starting in February. It's gonna be. Uh, it's gonna be great. It's like. Uh, it's like Train Spotting Two. You make them wait for it, and then the payoff <laughs> is so great. Everyone agrees. Train Spotting Two, number yeah. one film of 2019. I would say that's probably true of Terminator Two. Terminator you, Two was the wait long. It was uh, uh, 84 to 91. Okay, it was so pretty that was, long. That was, yeah. That was a fair amount of time. Yeah, I'd say so. Mad Max, though, they, they've got it, though. That, uh, that fourth movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I guess that's the ultimate example is that, like, 15 years in the making Fury Road. Um, oh, yeah. And then it's the best one. Right. Very strange. <laughs> yeah, I'd still say Road Warriors. Yeah, the best that's, one where I land as, that's where I land as well, but I respect uh, I mean, it's like on my it's up. on my, like, top 20 of the decade, but still. Hey, Jim. Yeah. 2019. Oh, that's right. 2019 is what we're here to talk that's about. That's right. 2019. What we happened? Have, we have our list of our favorite films 2019. We have a listener list who graciously sent in their favorite films 2019. We're going to talk about... Thank you, listeners. Our least favorite films of 2019. We're going to be talking about all about the year. And I do, I'm curious, uh, what do you guys think overall 2019 is a film year? I'm going to say that it was okay. Some people seem to think it was great, but I think that's just due to short-term memory. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of people, like myself, realize that within the last couple months, usually around November is when all the good stuff starts coming out, you that's, know, either in screener form or otherwise. That's so true. I remember looking to see a movie in September and thinking, wow, there's, there's just nothing yeah. Then October comes along and the floodgates open yeah. and I, I haven't stopped since. So that is usually not the case for me. Usually there is some smaller indie movie that like barely gets released in like March or May or something. Mm-hmm. And that ends up being my favorite movie of the year. And a lot of the prestige sort of Oscar bait sort of stuff I am generally very cold on. Um, but this year I was convinced this is like the worst film year in memory um, and really it was just the worst film, like nine months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like January to September, wretched. And then October, November, December. Oh, look at all these interesting, cool movies that are coming out. Well, I was even those Oscars. I was even a little cool on a couple of movies that are probably going to be on everybody's list. And I've seen them on everybody's lists. But, uh, I was just kind of like, Hmm, is this again, one of those years where I question, <clears throat> do I love movies as I th- as much as I think I do? Because a lot of people are loving movies that I'm just kind of like, eh, that was okay, mm-hmm. you know. But then suddenly November comes around, I'm like, oh, movies are great, uh, you know. But uh, as we've experienced in the past, when I go back in time and watch a lot of older films, that's when I start going, yeah, movies are really great, and I need to keep up with a lot of older titles. I'm putting this year over last year only because when I was doing my 25 for last year, the like my my bottom four were things I was kind of apologetic about. I'm like, do these should these really be there? And this time, yeah, yeah. I'm like, can we go 30? <laughs> yeah, I, this, yeah, this this whole year I was eyeing. I I keep just an ongoing list, ranked list of uh 2019 movies I watched. And this whole year I was looking at my top 25, knowing we we're going to be talking about that, and like looking at the bottom five on that list being like, I actively dislike these movies. I think these are bad and I would not recommend them. And that was the way it stayed until like mid November. Yeah. Yeah. And there've been a lot of good movies. I will say that, you know, even, you know, looking through my list, I was like, um, you know, there are certain years like 2013, 2015, maybe even a little uh, 2017 where I'm like, there were a lot of great movies that year. Like my top five are some of my favorite movies that have come out in a long time. 
But then this year, I was like, there have been a lot of really good movies, but nothing that kind of blew me away, except for uh, the choice, you know, top three, top five, that we'll get to momentarily. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm still excited about about new movies. I mean, I kind of have to be because I'm a member of the Chicago Film Critics Association, and I have to keep up with all the stuff that they send. But uh, yo, do you see how butch Kristen Stewart is in that underwater trailer? Mm-hmm. That's that's what I'm that's what I'm mostly. 2020, the year uh, Kristen Stewart goes full butch. The ongoing like Kristen Stewart gender experiment. Yeah, uh, in cinema. That's a book waiting to happen, written yeah. by Patrick. No, not by me. I, there are people way more qualified to talk about that sort of thing than I am. Well, I'm um, excited. I'm excited for 2020. I mean, we'll see if Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie comes out. But uh, there, there's, 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 it's going to be a good year. I heard it's going to be a, a music video of Tom York opening a box, and it's going to mm. be in 35 millimeter, and people will cry. Sign me up. I'm crying already. You just mentioned that. I'm crying. Okay. So the, something I am qualified to talk about is some of these other categories we have. Uh, for our 2019 films. Ooh, yeah. So, this is so uh, much fun. Before we talk about our uh, numbers 25 to 11, we do want to talk about, uh, we have some other sort of broad general awards to give. Um, for example, hardest I laughed in a movie in 2019 is easily the seagull in The Lighthouse. Every instance of that seagull, this was the year of the untitled Goose Game, and that seagull <laughs> was also that year. There is something about a relentlessly uh, antagonistic uh, energy in a small little bird that is mm. the greatest thing ever. Um, so I can't even really pick a moment, even when the, even when, oh, we are going to talk about spoilers in this. Uh, yes, we everybody. We, uh, we'll, hopefully you've seen all these movies. Right. If, if, <laughs> if, so, if we're going to talk about a major spoiler, we will, uh, we will try to preface it at least, but like yeah. there's going to be a ton of minor spoilers or whatever. So when Robert Pattinson kills that seagull, I was laughing my ass off. I was the only one in the theater laughing my ass off, but uh, I sure was. So uh, I that's did the hardest I laughed uh, this year. Uh, remind me to, uh, during a break, bring out the new Directors Club mascot. Mm. So I can kill it? What is no. this? Is this uh... <laughs> You'll see. Okay. I, you better not kill it. I, I didn't know we had an old mascot, so that's, oh, that's fine true. by me. What's the hardest you laughed, Jim? Um, well, very similarly, the uh, delivery... From Robert Pattinson screaming the word farts in the lighthouse uh, when he's yelling at Willem Dafoe. Your farts! Your farts! <laughs> Just loved it. I, I love... I, that one went way up for me on a rewatch. You'll, mm-hmm. you'll hear about that more. But I also really like uh, Michael Shannon taunting Chris Evans in Knives Out. I, you know, maybe, maybe Dad left you some milk in the will for your cookies. I don't know. Just Michael Shannon in Knives Out is funny. So I'm going to go straight into a major spoiler, mm-hmm. which is the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm. Ah. And it's a scene that's not funny. It's, it's the scene of uh, the carnage and, and the violence of uh, the, the, the Manson killers uh, getting their comeuppance. And in the middle of all that, when we're pretty much on the edge of our seats and, and, and watching all this, Leonardo DiCaprio comes out with a flamethrower, <laughs> which is hysterical because it was a throwaway at the very beginning that he was using a flamethrower in the movie he was shooting, and now he's just got it. <laughs> yeah, if you look closely in the background, it's it, you see it when he's w- walking in the shed at one point. So it's it's it was there. It's teased. But, yes, it's teased. So I think there is only one sane choice for 2019's best use of a song, but we'll see if you guys agree. I think I got five on it. Already one of the greatest songs ever. It's use in us, both mm. in 
as the trailer. Like, <laughs> when you think about like the how hotly people were anticipating the follow up to Get Out, and we're like, all right, well, Jordan Peele, yeah, he had Get Out in him. Is he a filmmaker? Is you know, like people were really didn't know what to expect from us, and then that trailer came out, and then that like symphonic trailer version of the music hits. And I think, like, I was in the theater. I just heard everyone just go, oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know we did. I think we saw the happy death day to you. Yeah, yeah. And, and then it was like, oh, God, I can't was, wait for that. The, yeah, and then and then it was like, okay, so that was a cool, like, trailer moment or whatever. And then, it like, the way it pops up in the movie, again, it's just it's so great. That, I always love that song, but, like, yeah, that, that special sort of version of it. The Loonies even went back and they re-recorded a like a remix called I Got Five on Us. Where uh, it's like a weird horror uh, core uh, song uh, where they're rap, rapping about their doppelgangers. It's pretty good. And uh, my choice was to be uh, Out of Time by the Rolling Stones in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I really like seeing all what the... What scene is that? The neon lights all coming up in Los Angeles. And oh. that yeah. yeah, I really like that. Yeah. It's nice. Jim, we have a match. <gasps> really? Oh my God. That was also my choice. Especially because that's pretty much the scene where we start seeing a pregnant Sharon Tate and realize that things are about to get real. And on the one hand, it's a little on the nose uh, saying out of time as that's happening on the screen. Yeah. But um, it really does ratchet up the tension as we head into the climax. Could not agree more. All right. Well, now that I know I'm uh, podcasting with two madmen, I don't even know what to expect. This has gotten very exciting. Mm. Best line of dialogue for me is in the Peter Strickland movie, In Fabric. Um, <laughs> it is, it's a line that Fatma Mohammed, who plays sort of the head shop uh, keeper at this sort of... Every line she says is gold. Yes. Yes. That is a very good script. But uh, she's sort of the head shopkeeper at this like department store that's run by a coven of witches. Um for the purposes of uh, consumerism, which is it's just a very, very funny movie. It's like, it's it's half, if you haven't seen it, because it didn't, it got kind of buried. It got picked up by A24 and they did nothing with it. Um, I don't even think it got like a physical disc release in America yet. But uh, if you haven't seen it, it's like half Mike Judge's office space and then <laughs> half like rubber. Um, it's very fun. But anyway, she has the line of dialogue to a potential customer the hesitation in your voice, soon to be an echo in the recesses of the spheres of retail. <laughs> oh, God, it's so good. I, I, I got to go with, aren't you fond of me, lobster? That's very good, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, if I had to pick... Aren't you fond of me, lobster? If I had to pick best facial expression, it might be that line of dialogue <laughs> and, or just like 70 other things that Willem Dafoe does with his face in that oh, movie. Oh, yeah, that whole sequence is amazing when they start with, what? What? Oh, so good. <laughs> My line of dialogue could uh, match with my uh, the hardest I laughed. It's uh, from Knives Out. Mm. And it says the uh, detective is uh, stating the state of the case. And this is a, a going to be a little shortened version. Uh, I know where you're going. Because it just keeps going. Because a donut hole in the donut's hole is not a donut hole at all, but a smaller donut with its own hole. And our donut is not whole at all. <laughs> you know you, very enjoyable you can say a lot of things about ryan johnson you can't accuse him of not being <laughs> clever um so we have best acting newcomer up next this is a hard one for me nothing really stuck out i 
Ended up sort of just by default um, giving it to Kevin Garnett in Uncut Gems just because I thought he did a surprisingly good job for a non-actor. I mean, he's just playing himself, so that's usually the easiest thing for celebrities to do. But I thought there were scenes he had to do that had some sort of emotion and dynamic range that uh, I thought he was very good at. I agree. Um, I went with uh, Honor Swinton Byrne in The Souvenir. I thought a very subtle uh, performance and uh, very surprising. Mm. You know, I mean, I, this is Tilda Swinton's daughter, I believe. And mm. uh, it's a movie we'll be talking about shortly. But I just I hadn't seen her in anything before. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of her. I like that movie a lot. I did not really. Th- and that was the first place my mind went to. But ultimately, I just didn't think much of her performance. Okay. Personally, I thought it was very subtle and sweet. Mm-hmm. I had a bunch of people I thought I might pick, and then I saw their IMDb, and it's like, oh, they've actually been around. So, uh, but uh, whose first film it is is Jimmy Fails from uh, Last Black Man in San Ooh, Francisco. Sure, and the movie is actually based partially on his own family history, and it seems like he he might have been a non actor. He has a very uh, naturalistic uh, performance and uh, added a lot to the film. Yeah, that's a very good choice. Now, if you're talking about a group of actors, we're talking about best ensemble. And for me, uh, there were this was kind of the year of the ensemble. For sure. Um, there was a lot of different choices, but for me, I had to go with Parasite. Same. Same. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that whole cast is absolutely astounding. Yeah, there's no weak links going on. There. No. No, not at all. That not is, at all. And that is a movie that... It, it, that's a movie for how clever the script is and for how well directed it is and everything. If all of those actors weren't pitch perfect, it could it could end up feeling lop, lopsided and wobbly. They're walking a tightrope there, and they really nail it. Yeah, I was going to go with Little Women, but Emma Watson. Eh. <laughs> Emma Watson, not a good actor, as it turns out. Ooh. Turns out when you get famous when you're 11, there's no guarantee that you're going to... She's had her moments, I think. What, what What's your favorite Emma Watson performance? I like Perks of Being a Wallflower. I mean, yeah, I know that's okay we can move on just saying uh, that name makes his eyes roll okay so most nail-biting moment um for m- most of my time making this list i was convinced <coughs> that i would just have to pick one of like 17 things that happen in uncut gems yeah me too but then i was going over my entire list of films i saw this year and there was actually one that made me scream uh in my living room and that is there is a 50-minute uh, documentary on Netflix called Dancing with the Birds. It is narrated by Stephen Fry. It's about birds of paradise, which are little weirdos who have super elaborate mating rituals because there's no <laughs> predators around. And so they've just – they're basically human beings where it's like they're, they don't really have to fear predators. And therefore, they've just made their lives way more complicated <laughs> than it has to be. Um, so well, there is a bird of paradise who builds basically like a log cabin sort of thing out of twigs. And this particular bird had been building this log cabin thing for seven years and it was six feet tall. And there is a scene where a pig comes rustling around and it's about to knock it over. Whoa. And it, I it, I was just looking at that. It's, you know, it's like insanely tall. Like the bird, it's like a sparrow size. It's this tiny bird that's built this giant structure and it's like kind of beautiful looking. They hang ornaments off of it and everything. The whole idea is just people see or other birds see the structure and go, oh, that bird's good at making things. I should probably mate with it. Like it's ridiculous, but it's put so many years into it. And then this pig is just rooting around looking for whatever and starts knocking into it. And I start, I screamed in my living room. Um, but luckily that bird is a mimic and made the sound of like a dog and it scared the pig away. Birdcast coming in 2020. I guess so. I guess, yeah, Kapol. this was the year of the bird. Absolutely. It, it is. Yeah. 
Um, well, there is a scene in the movie Beanpole that I can't really talk about, but I couldn't believe what I was seeing. But when you can see you the, give some sort of hint so well, people who see the movie can then know that's what you were talking well, about? Well, when you see the movie, you'll know when it happens, but it does involve um, a, a woman and a child just spending time together and then something unexpected happens. Uh, and there's also moments in 1917 that made me jump. Uh, and it could be because, like, when I saw it in the theater, like, it, it was in one of the, you know, the IMAX Dolby sounds. It was like, oh, yeah? it, it, when bombs went off, I was jumping. The night sequence, when he's running. That was, rat falls from the ceiling. That oh, is a yeah, very yeah. good jump scare. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Because it's, it's not a cheat. They set up the rat, but and they set up the yeah, bomb, yeah, yeah. but, like, it just happens super suddenly. Yeah, I know. It freaked me out. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. I was pretty much on the edge of my seat through all of the lighthouse. Yeah, that, sure, that sure. one. Well, we'll be talking about that. But the the most nail biting moment was probably near the end, as uh, Robert Pattinson uh, approaches the light in the lighthouse itself. Yeah. And I won't say what happens, but you know, as it's happening, I'm pretty much slack jawed in the theater, going, "Oh my god, oh my god." Yeah, if we had a category for best sound design, uh, that would probably be my pick oh, after yeah. listening to it in headphones and that moment in particular what they do with the sound is pretty remarkable mm-hmm. now for best director as is tradition i am abstaining because i don't want to reveal yeah. the uh, my number one pick of the year exactly. agreed yep. okay cool I, well, I just ta- i should just take this off yeah. <laughs> every year we do that <laughs> uh, i think i started that uh that cowardly uh, ups- uh, uh trend so no, I, I think that's that. true i think that's that always so happens, um so i don't good so i don't do uh gendered acting awards so i'm just gonna go give my both my best actor and best supporting actor um and i'm Never heard this name spoken aloud, so I'm gonna probably gonna mispronounce it. But uh, Lupita Nyong'o from uh, Us is best lead actor of the year. Two very very good performances in that movie. Um, that movie is a. There's a lot about that movie that's thinner than maybe it should be, and I think she carries it past the uh, the goal line there. And uh, best supporting actor is Willem Dafoe in The Lighthouse, who makes about 75 of my favorite facial expressions I've ever seen in a movie. Well, we definitely have a match on uh, Best Supporting Actor, but uh, I, I kind of I, I, I want to champion Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems because mm-hmm. I do think it's his best performance to date. And uh, a moment where he has a, a breakdown in, in the back of, of his office, uh, I was, pr- was pr- kind of blown away seeing that range and depth of emotion from him because I just thought he was just going to be like, you know, you know, anxiety inducing the entire time, but he does have a moment where he sort of reflects on all the shit that he's done and the consequences that uh, really got to me. So yes, best actor, Adam Sandler um, and best actress for me is Elizabeth Moss. No surprise. You have best supporting actress. Oh yeah. Best supporting actress is Florence Pugh. So I'm going to cheat. Okay. With my best actor award because I saw five performances that I just consider monumental and I'm been constantly like looking at the five. How do you choose? How do you choose? No, it's a five way tie. So this is like the five Oscar nominees for best actor that, that I would submit. So uh, Antonio Banderas for pain and glory. Mm-hmm. Good. Robert choice. De Niro for the Irishman, Willem Dafoe for the lighthouse, Adam driver for marriage story and Joaquin Phoenix for Joker. These five just all are amazing mm. in the actress category. I was able to uh, narrow down and I'm going with uh, Scarlett Johansson for marriage story. Mm. 
Yeah, for sure. Definitely her best work to date, I'd say. Yeah, Definitely. I would agree. Yeah. Uh, for supporting actor, I will pick Brad Pitt from uh, Once, Upon, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You and everybody else. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> He just, we talked about this in the uh, podcast we did specifically on the movie, but he just uh, brought this level of charisma to the role that created, that creates a lot of tension when you consider the, the actual darkness of the character when you really look into him. And he struck that uh, perfect balance in being kind of this uh, nostalgic uh, fantasy figure and, um, a real dude involved in the situations we see unfold. For uh, supporting actress, uh, I will go with uh, Taylor Russell um, from Waves, okay. who uh, once uh, <coughs> once the movie starts to focus on her, it, it, it really is brought up a few notches. Yeah, both uh, both performances, Taylor Russell and I forgot his name. Mm. I should write it down. But he was also in Loose this year. Uh, I'll look it up, but yeah. That's one the, I did the, not get to. We didn't do our list of shames this year, but I I, I did not see Waves. Waves is very good. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, I'm sorry. The, the actor you're thinking of is Kelvin, Kelvin Harrison, Harrison Jr. Jr. Yes, yeah. of course. Of course. All right. Excellent. Yeah, now, he's great. I'm not a movie score person the way that Jim is, but I thought this year was particularly weak in that I literally could not think of a single score in any movie I had seen this year. When yeah. I was like looking back over my list of 75 movies I watched, not a single one of them had something that was memorable. Um, so I just went with us because again, <laughs> no, it's a good it. choice. It's a good it's choice. Like a cop out answer. No, I, 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 I wouldn't argue that at all. I, I, I kind of went with uncut gems. And I also, again, I, I rewatched In Fabric, and I think that has a very interesting score. It's not just all weird sound stuff going on in the background. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of sequences where it's just score, and I, I really like the In Fabric score. I will go with Knives Out, <coughs> sure. the score from uh, Nathan Johnson. It's uh, very string-heavy, mm-hmm. and it reminded me of uh, old scores from some... Uh, mystery movies i really like like uh, sleuth and death trap it has that uh it's a kind of score that brings you into the genre of the murder mystery or the, the you know especially the fun murder mystery so i really appreciated how it was working with the film yeah that, that would be on my new year's resolutions for this year is to watch some uh, more whodunits and murder mysteries and things because i've never seen uh, sleuth the original sleuth, sleuth well it's is hard amazing. well it's actually on youtube so i guess it's not hard to see but it's been like out of print forever mm. i'm gonna see the last yeah. of sheila a, f- a few others i'm gonna just mm. make a list of. sure absolutely yeah. um now for uh, best screenplay i had to go with parasite same same okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like, possible we'll be talking about parasite 20, in more detail yeah 2019 a little predictable maybe no, i mean there were there were other, there, there, there no, were there other were. great screenplays oh, yeah, obviously definitely. knives out has an Uncut incredible gems, screenplay yeah, yeah um but sure well when you have a, a screenplay that does so many different tones mm-hmm. and does them all right mm-hmm. that that's an accomplishment because a lot of screenplays can't even do one kind of movie right it, yeah, that, good point. Good point. Parasite is one of those movies that follows like all of the like Sid Field Hollywood rules of how a screenplay should be constructed, but just does so in such a surprising way at every turn that yeah. like it's it's both extremely it's it's able to be extremely satisfying satisfying in that broad way without being too predictable. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Robert McKee, <laughs> you know, showcases this screenplay in the future as like being. An example of how to write 
a great film. Right. Um, so for best in a photography, I had to go with the lighthouse. Um, especially there's those early moments before any dialogue happens. They really, really lean hard into like the German expressionism, but that whole movie, the black and white, like the limited lighting, um, the setting, just everything about it is, is so unbelievably gorgeous. I love that movie and the cinematography. Gotta go with the Deeks. Really? Yeah, I like 1917. Did you like the one take? I mean, I like and Roger Deakins in general. I know, but, but I, I mean, like I the, 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 the of shot us. of light and like the, the whole sequence at night with the light, you know, it was just. So I don't think this is a movie that's going to be in either of our. No, it's not. It's not. Or I, I, I mean, I didn't love well, it. Well, by the way, we're talking about 1917. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't love it, but I just think so, Roger yeah. Deakins is an incredible cinematographer and what he did. I mean. Okay, so we can make the argument that it didn't need to be one take. Well, but. more so, like, for me, that was a movie where I kept wishing that the camera would stop moving because you would have sure. an incredible shot that it was just moving towards. And so... But every shot of, looked great. There were, there were like, maybe a handful of images that really stuck with me, but a lot of them, I think they would have stuck with me if they were able to edit into them instead of having to keep moving from one setup to the next. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, I mean, you know, it's your choice, but, like, that was... I still love it. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So what do we call the movies we haven't seen? The 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 list, of, the list yeah. of shame. The yeah. list of shame. Uh, unfortunately, uh, nineteen seventeen is on my list of shame. I haven't been able to catch. It's that. only in. It's only at the River East in Chicago. Despite oh. it having yeah. an official <laughs> Christmas Day. Yeah, that's weird. Release date. I don't think they're actually releasing it wide until January tenth. But I'm going to pick, uh, like you, Patrick, I'm going to pick The Lighthouse. Uh, I've never seen a movie look like this. Yeah, true. The, the, the black and white, the um, old-style square frame, and then what he puts in that frame. And um, the, the, it's endlessly creative visually. And so, I, uh, you know, even, you know, just making The Lighthouse itself constantly interesting and shot in different ways. And then when you, you know, get to the ocean and all the environments, it's yeah, yeah. just amazing. So we are now at the worst film of the year. And uh, I didn't see Cats, so I'm not going to say Cats. Um, <laughs> which I, I almost, which, I, I'm almost I'm, I'm probably going to see it at some point just yeah. to see what everybody's talking about. But by the time you see it, it'll ha they'll have updated it. We won't get oh, to right, see that. Right, I, yeah. I, I need to see someone's camcorder bootleg so I can see the pure, uncut, bad CGI um, I did see The Kitchen this year, and The Kitchen is an astounding movie. There is there's there are movies that I hated more than The Kitchen. I hate hate Midsummer. I really hate everything that movie stands for and represents. Mm. But that movie had elements to it that were good. Of course, there is nothing good about The Kitchen. It is the sort of sub widows esque uh, crime movie uh, with Melissa McCarthy, uh, Tiffany Haddish, and uh, Elizabeth Moss as like these widows of these criminals and they take over the organization could have been called widows. Then it is so hmm. generic and it is so like, it is just five minutes of people being like, we got to do crimes. Like, but you're a lady, you can't do crimes. It's like, we're going to do the crimes. And then there's a Fleetwood Mac song as they put money in envelopes. And then it's like, I feel better now that I'm doing crimes. Yeah. It's like, it feels like a grand theft auto video game. Like if you just watch all the cut scenes from it, where it's like, okay, none of this is important. What you're actually trying to do is get to the next mission. So we're just going to have some generic placeholder dialogue in here. Like, that's what it feels like. Everyone is horribly miscast. Um, Elizabeth Moss is the best actor in the movie. And she has like 
her her character role is that she like heroically murders a homeless person. <laughs> like that's her like big arc is she's oh, like God. like and the whole movie they try to pretend that it's like feminist, uh, but it's she's just like yeah I fucking killed that guy and now I'm so powerful woman. Like that movie fucking sucks. Yeah, I never heard anything good about it, so I never bothered. Yeah, it's movie, not funny. A movie that I kept hearing good things about that I ended up seeing and absolutely hating is Joker. Um, and yes, it has pretty good cinematography, I guess. Uh, but I don't think it adds anything to the Joker mythology or the Batman mythology or, uh, I've seen Joaquin Phoenix do this performance much better and you were never really here. I just thought it was a worthless movie that added nothing. And when I walked out, I was just like, I wasted my time. And I know a lot of people feel very differently about it. I just uh, couldn't find a lot of redeeming qualities and anything that made it worthwhile for me. So um, I'm sure there are worse movies. I'm sure Cats is a far worse movie. Um, but I just hadn't seen anything that just made me go, ugh, afterwards. And well, we all know it, how much I love to make noises. It's going to get nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. Yeah. So and if get out of discuss now and uh, so I don't have to get that angry email from you <laughs> at 4 a.m. Or text. Yeah, yeah. If, if Joaquin Phoenix wins Best Actor, that's fine, I guess. But I just... Has he know. won before? He has not. No, no. Okay, so they're going to no. give it to him for that. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, don't fine. watch the Oscars. That's my... If you are hearing my I voice got, right I now... I have to. No, you it's, do not. Yeah, you absolutely I'm, do not. No one needs to watch the Oscars. What you should do instead... I watch it to get angry. Go, look at me in the eyes. What you should do instead is go out and like financially support a local independent artist... Um, because the Oscars do not care for you. They do not love you. You should go out and do something good in the world instead of wasting your time on it and then saying, it was too long and it wasn't funny and I didn't agree with the choice. Like, just don't do it. Don't do it. Thank you. That is my, that is, that's a message I want to send out to everyone who downloads this. Do not watch the Oscars. You are, you are no doubt correct. Yeah. But it is difficult to stop doing something you've been doing since you were 10. I'm an alcoholic. I know about that. Which leads me directly to my worst movie of the year, Star Wars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Yes. Oh, my. That's a surprise. Oh, my Lord. This so, is another one that made me more mad than The Kitchen. But Actually, yeah, this one bummed me out. Giving it the credit that, yes, it does spectacle. I've never felt I was watching just Studio Notes the movie mm-hmm. oh, as much yeah. as this. There was no through line. Everything was scene that was done for a particular behind-the-scenes purpose that has nothing to do with advancing the story. It made no freaking sense. Which yeah, is not on a scene-to-scene basis. It's at times. not always a problem. I'm actually going to have some movies later on that I like that don't make a lot of sense. But it, but, but there's a trade-off. It gives you something in return for being weird. This one is just like we don't care. We're going to bring characters back from the dead and not explain why. Yeah. We're going to kill well, off. That's just because you don't play speak. Fortnite. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> we're, we're going to kill off four characters only to bring them back in the next scene and be like, gotcha. This, yeah. this is just, and it's so disappointing. I am, I am not a hater of this trilogy. I, I liked to some extent or another, both force awakens and, and the last Jedi. Same. And, you know, and, and so I'm not even asking that it be as good as the original trilogy, which I knew wasn't going to happen, but to just, you know, not be able to conclude what was set up in this trilogy is really sad. 
It is. It really depressed me. It felt like one of those like late, uh, later Harry Potter movies where they have too much book to adapt, oh. so they're just like rushing through. They're like, yeah. by the way, there's five horcruxes, and each horcrux has seven shards, and we got to go to this prophecy. Like, there's so much bullshit exposition mm-hmm. that's like, I didn't even know there was a prophecy. Right? <laughs> you, you guys, I've watched all these movies. Yeah, I was very confused with the return of Palpatine in general too. It was just like, why? And then he's like, "If you kill me, then uh, you know the, the the darkness will go into you." And then she does kill him. Oh wait, well spoilers. Everybody's seen it. I hopefully by now. But yeah, I didn't understand a lot of the the, the decisions made, and the kiss was weird. And my uh, yeah. one like fingers crossed thing about this movie is that I hope this indicates where Disney's head is at. And I hope, A, they continue to alienate people so people stop supporting that nightmare fucking company. And B, I hope this means that Ryan Johnson isn't going to waste his time doing a new Star Wars trilogy. I like hope he not either. Planned. That I would hope, be really depressing. Because it's like if he can just bounce off of Knights out, Knives Out and be like, oh, actually, I'm an auteur who gets to make exciting original movies. Like, fucking best case scenario. Yeah, I mean, the, the Last Jedi was very good, but yeah, it was. Brick and Knives Out were better. Yeah, exactly. Well, of course. But yeah. Are you watching The Mandalorian? Are you, uh, I, 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 yeah, I'm part a lot of, the, of a lot of people. I am are. part of the cult of the Baby Yoda. Yeah, and yes, everything I kind of hated about uh, this last Star Wars movie, I actually really enjoyed what they were doing in The Mandalorian. Okay, interesting. Yeah, maybe I'll watch it. I don't know. Anyway, most promising discovery for me. I I think this is probably that photo. <laughs> Of the black hole that came out this year, I think oh, that was that was a very. Good, I didn't know what this category about. What is uh, or the ending of highlight? What does most promising discovery mean? Uh, somebody we just. I feel like we've done this before, right? And I couldn't remember what the like a director that okay, we is it, just so it's best directing newcomer. Yeah, let, well, let me retitle the category okay. next year. <laughs> uh, Joanna Hogg. Okay, souvenir. I would agree with that, and I'm also putting the director of Colwell, which I believe his name is Tom Quinn which I'll get to later. Yeah, I took this to mean the best new director, but I, I realized that a couple of the uh, directors on their second film have pretty much already been discovered, like Jordan Peele and, sure. and Robert Eggers. Sure. So I'm actually going to go with, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this, uh, Lodge Lai, who uh, directed the French film Les Miserables, oh, which I has haven't seen that. nothing yeah. to do with the musical, nothing really to do with the Hugo book, but uh, is a, a, a wonderful uh, crime movie uh, set in the streets of Paris. And he really has a, a great way with the camera. And it reminded me a little bit of uh, City of God in the way it was filmed. Oh, so I, okay. I, I'll check that out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so best older film that you saw for the first time this year. Uh, for me, it's a, it was a... It was between uh, Only Angels Have Wings and uh, The Testament of Dr. Mabuse. Excellent both. Wow. For me, it's so, the uh, easily the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie yeah. by uh, Buñuel. Cool. As uh, some of you know who have been listening to the uh, regular episodes of Director's Club, Al and I have been doing a uh, complete Ingmar Bergman project, Woo-hoo! trying to, over three episodes, uh, cover all of Bergman. And there was one that none of us had seen that was just an amazing surprise because it was an Ingmar Bergman screwball comedy. What? Called A Lesson in Love. And I know you, you, you when you think of Ingmar Bergman, screwball comedy is not the first thing that comes to mind. But... Uh, Check this out. It it, it delivers I on might, all those yeah. things. It's like Tootsie and Moonstruck and all those kind of things. Uh, 
Directed by Ingmar Bergman. <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. I feel like I feel like he do, he's done a, some other comedies, right? He has. He's done. Um, his most famous comedy is Smiles of a Summer Night. That's, that's oh, what I yeah. was thinking. Oh, with, yeah, with, yeah. In which the comedy is, it's kind of like <laughs> little little laughs here and there. It's kind of like uh, whimsical comedy. That's the one that Woody mm-hmm. Allen basically did as a Midsummer Night's sex comedy, exactly. right? Exactly. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Exactly. And then he did a, a terrible uh, Jerry Lewis-style comedy called All These Women, which we, uh, everyone should just avoid like the plague. But but this lesson in love that that was the the sweet spot. It had uh, two of his best uh, comic actors, Ingmar, um, Gunnar Bjornstrand and Eva Dahlbeck, and it's as a married couple who have uh, various uh, conflicts and misunderstandings in their efforts to get back together. Rock and roll. Okay, I'll check that out. So for best theatrical experience this year, uh, for me, it had to be uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch because that's a film it, that I, I saw that. in high school. That was extremely important to me, like introduced me to a whole fucking slew of different like everything from glam rock, you know, to queerness to, you know, questions of gender, like everything contained in that movie. That was like for me, that was the queer film like period. And I went into this having not seen it basically since then and really trepidatious that I it would, it would not sort of age well especially given, you know, the way that discussion of gender identity and stuff has progressed in the past several years. Like I thought, Oh, this is going to be, um, this is, I'm in for another heartbreak and it holds up beautifully. It's so good. Hedwig and the angry inch still killer. Yeah. Uh, I wish I'd gone to that cause that's one of my favorite movies and another movie that's become one of my favorite movies. And one of my favorite movies of the decade is something we saw way back in February and uh, it was during the polar vortex that we ventured out to, um, what's the name of that university? Northeastern? North, you know, yeah, the, the, cannot the, recall. Okay. So this is the one for the Chicago Film Society? Yeah. The Chicago, yeah, it's Northeastern. Northeastern, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We saw computer chess together. And, Tell uh, them how we saw it. It's such a weird experience, right? Because uh, they commissioned, right, a 35 millimeter print directly from Bujowski. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> It was a, a, a weird experience to see this movie. And for those who don't know, Computer Chess was shot on late 70s video technology. So the whole yeah. thing is in black, smeary black and white. Um, like if you looked at old like NASA footage or something, like it, it, it just, it's, yeah, it's really a very weird. bizarre look and not the sort of thing you think of as ripe for like, oh yes, I need a pristine That's celluloid That's why it stood print. out so much for yeah. me. And being able to watch that movie with you in the theater was a joy. Yeah, and all that's and also that that is a movie that you don't think of as necessarily a big screen movie because it no. it's not visually spectacular. But so much of that movie is extreme close ups of like squirming, uncomfortable faces. Yeah. <laughs> and when you do see it on the big screen, you're just you're in those hotel rooms. And didn't they show like a Robert, um, not Robert, uh, Richard Simmons? They sure did infomercial type thing. They had another shot on video uh, film print, mm-hmm. uh, and it was a Richard Simmons uh, public service announcement about con- water conservation where he dressed up like no. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. It was pretty good. Yeah. Good times. They know what they're doing at the Chicago Film Society. We should and give them a plug. I, unfortunately, they do screenings mostly on Wednesdays, and I open on Thursdays. So, like, 2019 was the year I basically never went. But um, every time I've gone to see, even movies I think thought were terrible, every time I went to see a Chicago Film Society screening, it was the greatest. Yeah, and Miracle Mile would be my runner-up for that, too. That Miracle Mile very <clears throat> nearly made best older film I saw for the first time, because that movie... You had talked about forever, and I just like, well, it's like an after. 
after hours thing. Of course, the gym thing, whatever. But no, that movie is incredible. Great. I got to see a couple horror movies that uh, I couldn't see when I was a kid because I was too young. And uh, I'd seen them many times since on TV, but never on the big screen. So it was, I got at the mute, both at the Music Box Theater. I got to see the first Alien. Oh, yeah, that and, was a good time. Yeah, and uh, Tom Skerritt from the movie <laughs> was there to do a Q&A afterwards. He was a blast. Yeah, so that, that was that was great. And, and, and as much as you think, like, you know the film and the film has got you, when you see it on the big screen, it gets you on a whole oh, other yeah. level. It still makes you jump. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Like, I saw Halloween, uh, like, on, a, on film. And it's like it's amazing when the movie works, and you see, and it's a bunch of people who haven't seen it in a theater, uh, and they have it, enough reverence to not sort of chat through it the way they may have when they were watching it at home with their friends or whatever. You get a theater full of people who have definitely seen this movie before, mm-hmm. all jumping at the scare. It's like a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of Carpenter, that was uh, the other horror film I got a chance to see was The Fog on the big screen, which mm, is so atmospheric. Yes, that yes. was so mm. cool. I so that makes that. two lighthouse movies for me this year. I guess so. <laughs> I'm really into uh, nautical sort of seaside horror, like Dead and Buried is another really good one. Yeah. Isn't the Crescent kind of that? Crescent, exactly. Yeah. Crescent, one of my favorite movies of two years ago. Yeah. Um, I need to watch that again because I really loved that too. Yeah, we'll be talking about the Crescent on a, uh, a future episode of Genre Grinder. Oh, Yes, that's right. Um, we're going to talk about our favorite horror movies of the decade, so stay tuned for that. Absolutely. But right now, we're all done with the uh, categories we're doing, and uh, do you want to read some reader lists, or do you I want I think we to? added one more uh, per Brad. Uh, it's, I don't know if we're going to do an entire episode, but I think that our lists will float on Letterboxd. But what is your favorite film of the decade, of the, of the 2010s? Oh, I mean, uh, for me, it's easy. Upstream it's, color. Upstream, yeah, it's upstream color. <laughs> There's no competition for me. And there's also none for me, but it's a different film. It's uh, Oscar Ferrati's A Separation. Sure, oh, yes. great choice, that, great that choice. That movie, it, it, it's kind of, it, it actually reminded me a little bit of Parasite in yeah, the yeah. way that you, you come in thinking this is going to be a particular kind of movie and it just surprises you over and over again as you're watching it. And, and in the case of A Separation, it surprised me on a, a deeply profound level uh, throughout. So if you have not seen this film, I, I cannot recommend it enough. Yeah, that would definitely be my top 10 of the decade. Oh, I, yeah. Or at least you, the top 20. It's funny. You sprung that question on me, and I was like, what are you doing? There's no way I could wait. Yeah, it's up to color. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I forgot one of my favorite movies came out this decade. Um, probably one of our fa- my favorite episodes we ever did was the best of 2013 episode, where we just... Was it 2013? Yeah, it was 2013. Yeah. Because yeah. it was such an amazing year. It was a very, it was an embarrassment of riches. Leviathan, yeah. computer chess. Act of killing. Yeah, man, that movie's good. Oh, God. Okay. Are anyway. We do some reader or do you want to go into Yeah, the- I have, a, I have a, a quick email here from longtime listener Joshua Four, who basically, uh, I think this also happened last year where he just wrote us something nice instead of sending a list, actually. Uh, it just says, um, hey, guys, I just wanted to reiterate how... Um, you are one of the best movie podcasts out there, but I also miss you dearly. <laughs> it's kind of funny to start that out. Um, so yeah, basically it says, please put out more episodes because I truly get through a rough job and difficult commute by listening to your delightful discussions. I want to say that I learn something every time, laugh nearly every episode, and then run to the library to put things on hold because of your show. 
Never underestimate what you do. It means a lot to me, and I'm sure others too. So keep it up as long as you can, and I can't wait for one of my favorite ways to kick off the new year with the year-end episode. Thank you, Brad, Patrick, Jim, and Al, Joshua Four. Very nice. Thank awesome. You. Thank you, Josh. It's a good way to kick things off from our listeners. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Are we doing the next list, or is... <laughs> sure. Let's uh, let's keep going here. We got another list uh, from a uh, longtime listener as well. And contributor, he was uh, on the uh, Oliver Stone episode. He was probably on another episode, maybe, I think, at one point. We Baby Thomas Wishloff. His number 10 is Saint Maud, which my is... my favorite jazz guitarist, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is tied. Uh, his number 10 is tied. Uh, Saint Maud is tied with The Farewell. Number 9 is The Long Walk. Number 8 is Comets. Number 7 is Away. Number 6 is An Elephant Sitting Still. Number five is Booksmart. Number four is Beanpole. Number three is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Number two is Us. And number one, Anne at 13,000 Feet. A lot of these I have not heard of. I think a lot of these are festival movies. You're probably right. Probably will. If they get a release, they'll get a release in 2020. And he also says, Hopes, hope that 2020 brings you all the good fortune that you deserve. Thank you, Thomas. You're one of our favorites. All right, and then we got one from Duke Falconer. Uh, He says, let me preface my list with, this has been an atrocious year for movies. (laughs) All in caps. But nonetheless, his number 10 is Parasite. His number nine is The Nightingale. Number eight is Uncut Gems. Number seven is Joker. Number six is The Marriage Story. Number five, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number four, Rolling Thunder Review. Number three, Transit. Number two, The Irishman. And number one, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which again is going to be a 2020 movie for uh, me and yeah. a lot of other people. It's on my list, but yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you saw it because you have yeah, yeah, you yeah, got yeah, screeners yeah. and stuff, yeah. but yeah, I'm not some um, blessed festival child, and I'm not a critic. That's okay. <laughs> so, are we reading so, through all the all the all the lists now? Because I think last year what we did. No, we did three each time we did it. Oh, right. So I okay, can, you're right. Yeah, sorry. I can do Martin Kessler's list. That's Please right. do. Please do. And uh, his number ten is Glass. Number nine, uh, Color Out of Space. Number eight, Fast Color. Hmm. Seven, The Irishman. Six, The Souvenir. Five, Atlantics. Four, The Painted Bird. Three, The Beach Bum. Two, High Life. And one, A Hidden Life. All right. Pretty so, good. Yeah, his top two movies had the word life in the title. <laughs> oh, and he also Thanks had... For that. Thanks for that. <laughs> And number eight and nine both have color in the title. <laughs> wow. Right. What is color out of space? Col- color comment. That's a, a horror movie with Nicolas Cage. Uh, I think directed by Richard Stanley. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Oh, Richard Stanley. He's interesting. Yeah, yeah. he is. I think yeah. that's going to get a wider release in 2020. Baller. All right. So let's talk about our our list, our big list here. Let's go from 25 to 11. Uh, we, well, I'll just take turns real quick, right? That's Where usually how I go do 25 it, yeah. to 11, then you go 25 to <coughs> Yeah, let's take a break. No. <laughs> you stay there. No breaks. Yeah. Check it out. See, the only thing you need to do right here is snod your fucking head. Yeah. Yeah. Break your fucking neck, bitches. Yeah. Yeah. Here we go. Starting with the great Patrick Rapole. Uh, my number five, my number 25 is about the great Dolomite. It is the uh, Dolomite is my name starring Eddie Murphy. It is for a, it's a biopic about someone who broke all the rules and crossed a lot of boundaries and stuff like that. And like 
all of his movies are fascinating <coughs> because they're so cheap and ramshackle. And in that way, it's kind of a disappointing movie that it's like it's so slick and by the numbers as far as that kind of biopic goes. But turns out I just like movies about making movies. And I think this does enough other interesting stuff uh, involving, you know, race and identity um, that it just really works for me on top of just being like, oh, it's fun. They're, they don't have mm-hmm. any money. So they're trying to squeeze together a budget like that sort of thing. So and Wesley yeah. Snipes was was a lot of fun. Yep. Speaking of uh, representation on screen, my number 24 is the only documentary uh, on my list. I feel like no documentaries wow. crossed over this year. There was no big hmm. documentary everyone was talking about. Apollo 11, it seems to I be. guess so. I, I, I didn't watch that because it's just... It's, it's pretty good. It's a space shuttle thing. I heard great things about it. I'm sure it is, but yeah, I, it I is. didn't watch it. My number 24 was Horror Noir, which is a shutter... Uh, exclusive oh, documentary yeah. about meaning to see that uh, depictions of black characters and black actors right. and black filmmakers in the horror genre, and it's a Talking Heads documentary, and it's it's sort of the thing like I can just watch any documentary about horror movies, but it is the sort of documentary I always hate, which is just this could have been a book. But the thing that is different about this specific sort of thing is when you're talking about representation on screen and you're talking about people's experiences watching movies and seeing like the cowardly black character and you hear it in their voices. Like Mm -hmm. the film format actually does serve it in a way that like a documentary about big star or whatever doesn't necessarily. Um, So I do think that is a really cool movie and I think it does a good job a lot better than a lot of horror documentaries as far as an overview of a subject. Um, My number 23, I think is deeply flawed movie, but it was just one of the more interesting Hollywood films I saw this year, which is Captive State, um, which is a huh. post-apocalyptic sci-fi movie that takes place in Chicago, and mm-hmm. it is about a uh, insurrectionist group trying to take over, trying to take out their alien overlords. And it was just like we're not like uh, I believe I heard it's been incomprehensible uh, no, from a lot of people. It is not incomprehensible. Okay. It's 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 sort of um, it's sort of stretched thin. Hmm. It's the characters aren't very strong, so I can see why people wouldn't remember who is who. But um, it was, so here's the thing. I just think that everyone should rise up and murder the 100 richest people in the world and oh, okay. and and the government and we should start over. And that sort of movie's never going to get made, but like this is sort of that version of it. So I like movies about sort of underground resistance movements and stuff like that. And this takes place in Chicago, so that was fun. And it's got a really dumb ending and there's a lot of things that are bad about it, but I just had a good time with it. I also just had a good time with Ready or Not, which is my number 22 film, uh, film by Radio Silence that I just thought was a whole lot of fun. It's like just perfectly pitched, um, just goofy horror comedy. And uh, I really like uh, Samara Weaving. She's good. Um, I liked her in The Babysitter, which I think is probably a bad movie, but I think I I kind of liked it. Yeah. Um, But I thought this movie was better and... Uh, she has an incredible scream, and I hope <laughs> I hope she gets to make more horror movies where she screams. It's a good scream. It's a My good number scream. twenty-one uh, is maybe not something some people would consider <clears throat> a quote-unquote twenty nineteen film, which is Anima, the Paul Thomas Anderson uh, sort wow. of long-form music video with Tom York. Uh, I really, really, really fucking hate the music video for Daydreaming. I don't like many of his music videos. I think he kind of has he kind of just gets away with good lighting and having no ideas. And I think music video is a format that thrives on ideas. And like Tom York walking through doors is not that I think anima is a music video that has a lot of good ideas. I think it has really good choreography. I think the ending was very moving and it helps that this is Tom York for the first time since like 2004, like singing in a way that makes you think he cares about what the words are, um, which is sort of my chief complaint with most, 
stuff he's done since Hail to the Thief, he just stretches out syllables and nothing means anything. <laughs> like, oh, I was so moved by that, though. Like, I hate the lyrics. I hate that the lyrics are incomprehensible in so much of post Hail to the Thief Tom York stuff. And this time he's gone back mm. and it seems like he actually has an emotional sort of immediacy. And I loved Anima. Um, my number 20 was 1917, which we already talked about, the Sam Mendes uh, World War One film. Um, it turns out that when you like big scale action movies, but every big scale action movie of the past 10 years has been driven by really phony looking CGI, you have to kind of make peace with the fact that you like war movies. <laughs> so, yeah, like, sure. So this is no Dunkirk. Like Dunkirk is a way better hit of that kind of drug I'm talking about. And I'm like, I'm, I don't, I don't feel good about liking war movies because war movies are all propaganda. If you're making a movie about heroism and war, you are making a movie that is telling people that war is an exciting place where you get to be your best self, which is absolutely untrue. And this movie is war propaganda. And guess what? This is a particularly bad time <laughs> to be wanting to watch war propaganda. But oh, at yeah. the same time, if the Marvel movies didn't all look like shit, then I wouldn't have to. So 1917 mm -hmm. is my number 20. My number 19 is my favorite action movie of the year, which is John Wick 3. Um, still a step down from John Wick 2. Agreed. But there's still a lot of really fun, innovative stuff, and I just love the way these movies look and feel. My number 18 was Ford v. Ferrari, which is the most standard biopic you've ever seen, except every single aspect of it is better than you think it should be. Um, it was the first movie. It's a I'd lot of fun. Yeah. First movie I had seen that made me understand why people think Christian Bale is a good actor, because generally he is in movies that I think are bad, um, or he is uh, sort of, or movies I don't want to see, like I have no interest in seeing The Fighter or something like that. So this was the movie where I was like, oh, okay. He's, he, I mean, obviously Empire of the Sun, but I mean like modern day. Right. Since sure. he kept going from fat, skinny, fat, skinny, fat, yeah, skinny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's good yeah. American Psycho. Uh, that's so long ago, though. I'm talking True. about the modern day, this is one of our finest actors sort of reputation that he has now. Um, I never saw it until Ford v. <coughs> Ferrari. And those uh, racing scenes are real exciting. Yeah, they are. Um, number 17 is High Flying Bird. Thank Christ, Steven Soderbergh. Ah, I should have caught up with this. Stop making movies oh. with the red camera and making like terrible yellow-looking movies. He's now shooting movies on the iPhone, and they look great. They're super widescreen. They all look kind of surveillance state, uh, you know, 21st century nightmare <laughs> kind of look. And <laughs> all he's interested in making in the 21st century is movies about how the the 21st century is a capitalistic nightmare. So, you know, it all fits. This has a really good script from the uh, playwright who did Moonlight. Um, and it kind of feels like The Wire. It feels like it would have been better as a, like, HBO series or something. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it ultimately ends up feeling very slight in the form of a feature film. But I just liked all the actors and I thought the script was amazing. Yeah, I'll catch up with that. Number 16 is Climax by Gaspar No, which is a film that, uh, has just absolutely incredible dancing in it and has really great energy. And then the rest of it's kind of fun, but like in a dumb way that I think is like, I think that they, I think that Gaspar no thinks that he is saying something about French society. I think he's like, Oh, you know, we're all turning on each other and you know, different marginalized groups. Like it's not that this is not that movie. This is a very goofy sort of drug trip, horror scare movie that you might have seen in like the early 70s exploitation or something yeah but a very good one but one where the camera work is really cool and it opens with just one of the best sequences of the entire year Agreed. which is that dance scene um, my number 15 is High Life by Claire Denis I could watch Robert Pattinson act with a baby forever 
Um, I ultimately mm-hmm. don't think this added up to very much, but every individual part of it I liked a lot. That's a good way to put it. My number 14 is Child's Play, the uh, the remake, the maligned remake, <laughs> because they uh, did away with Brad Dourif and, and then instead got Mark Hamill to pretend to be a robot. Um, this has a early 90s, late 80s direct-to-video horror feel. It is super goofy and super fun. And just, it has just a little, it's just like a little bit in bad taste and it's super violent and it looks incredible. The colors in it are really cool. And Chucky learns to kill because of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. <laughs> he, yeah, it's true. He watches Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and is radicalized. It is a very fucking silly movie and I, one of the best times I had in the theater this year. My number 13 is The Irishman, which I think is another, it's, its main problem is that it's just sort of another one of those. And at this point, I've seen Goodfellas, I've seen Casino, I've seen Wolf of Wall Street, and this is just sort of a good version of that. And like, luckily, there are enough people making bad ripoffs of Martin Scorsese movies that like you can appreciate when he does it. And you're like, oh, okay, this is what all those other movies were supposed to feel like. Sure. Um, but the CGI is terrible. I was going to make a joke and I forgot to earlier for best acting newcomer. I was going to say waxy Mick plastic face. <laughs> I think the first time you see Joe Pesci in this movie, I had to pause cause I was laughing so much. It was the dumbest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Hmm. Um, and I think that hurts it a lot. I think, I think you needed to do way more with his daughter, with the character of his daughter for any of the emotions to register. I think like the whole ending, the idea of like Anna Paquin says nine words in the movie and that's supposed to be the entire crux of like the last 45 minutes is ridiculous. And so I really like what he was going for, but I don't think it lands at all. Um, I, I, I really like that film a lot, although yeah. that particular criticism I think does land about how Anna Paquin is used. Yeah, I could I could, I could agree with that. Um, so anyway, that's number 13. Number 12 is Sword of Trust. If you uh, wanted oh, yeah. the return of like... The uh, days, Mumblecore. the, the mid '90s Sundance uh, indie comedy, uh, the uh, Day Trippers or Flirting with Disaster, that sort of thing. You mm. are in so much luck because Sort of Trust is here, and it feels like it's fell out of the fucking '90s. And it is really, really funny. All the actors are really good. Mark Marin has a monologue that's incredible. Yes, Mark Marin is someone who I really like as a stand-up, and I've never really liked as an actor. And in this movie, I think he's really good. Yeah. Um. It is very funny and it's, and it is, you know, it feels contemporary and current in its sensibility without trying to be like, by the way, this is an allegory for propaganda. Like, like it, it doesn't let any of the sort of overtones weigh it down from being like a buoyant fun comedy. And my number 11 is Marriage Story, which is a very good Noah Baumbach movie that is only hurt because it feels like, uh, one that he sort of went 75% on and then had to pull back because 100% Noah Baumbach movie is a really like nasty, venomous <laughs> thing that probably is not going to get nominated for any awards. I think the ending of this movie is particularly uh, risable, like that the discovery of the list. I think the... But my main problem with the movie is that the kid actor is bad and no one has any chemistry with him and he is the entire emotional crux of the movie. But no one seems to... Like he is just... Like the way he's written, the way his like reading disability is like, there are certain things where it's like (coughs) he plays with Legos all day long and he can't read the word Lego. Like it makes like, that doesn't even make sense in terms of how, you know, illiterate, like that's not how that works. You know, like illiterate people know what a stop sign says, even if they can't read, you know? And it's, there's a lot of stuff like that, that it just felt really phony. And that weighed down what I ultimately thought was a really good movie with Noah Baumbach's best direction yet. Um, I really like the theatrical 
feel of it. I mm-hmm. think the distancing effect of some of his choices, the way he shoots things and the way everything is super intricately blocked. I think that sort of mirrors the way that something that has like a real raw nerve anger to it uh, just sort of gets stretched out over an incomprehensible amount of time to the point where you don't even remember why you were getting, like why you decided to go through it in this way anyway. Um, Also, I think Adam Driver's character is kind of a piece of shit and the movie never really calls him on it. We'll talk about this movie later, I'm sure. Yeah. So that's my number 11. My number 25 is a film that I think will be higher on everybody's list on the planet. It's a film called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You might have heard of it. It's by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, He's an (laughs) up-and-comer. Why is it so low? Well, if you listen to the bonus episode from earlier this year, you'll probably know. Uh, But I watched it again with um, headphones on and 4K and I enjoyed it way more on a second viewing. I kind of got into the uh, the, the rhythm of it uh, a little bit better. And I think this is DiCaprio at his best. Pitt is uh, a creepy hoot. And uh, I like any scene with, uh, with, with uh, Julia Butters, who's also, you know, an up-and-comer, for sure. What character does she play? The little girl. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah she she's, stole that scene. Yeah. 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 Um, but again, I, I'm not 100% on board with the dramatic tonal shift in the final act. I still kind of stand by my reservations about it just because it's, I don't know. It just doesn't mesh well with everything else that came before it. Uh, So I'm not just, I'm just not into everything that follows Cliff smoking the, after he smokes the acid dip cigarette, I'm still like struggling with that. Maybe again, if I watch it again, maybe I'll sit with me better, but it just doesn't right now. And uh, I just, I, w- I wish it was, I don't know. I don't know. So there's something about it that doesn't sit well with me um, as a whole, but a lot of individual things about it I totally love and appreciate and will probably appreciate more as I watch it again. Uh, number 24 for me is Hotel by the River, the latest from the uh, uh, very prolific Hong sang Soo, who I was first introduced with um, Right Now, Wrong Then. And I have to catch up with like, 90 of his movies at this point. Sure. But uh, I, I pretty much like or at least love everything he's done. And this is probably his most accessible, narratively speaking, because it's very straightforward. Um, it's shot in black and white, and it takes place in a hotel. It involves two sets of people. Uh, one involves two friends trying to reconcile after a breakup, and the other involves a father and his two sons trying to mend their relationships. And obviously, I, I understand both of those stories from a personal experience, but uh, his approach is very uh, uh, Eric Romare, and uh, it's just about the awkwardness of being human and, and how we're all fragile and vulnerable. And yet his, the way he portrays women, I think, is, is really powerful. It's just like they're the strong and resilient ones, and men have a lot to learn. <laughs> so I kind of like that approach that he has um, in, in the majority of his films, and I continue to appreciate what he does. And this one really hit me um, towards the end. 23 is a film that might be higher up on Patrick's list, and it's one I want to watch again since I love all things Todd Haynes, pretty much. And this is uh, Dark Waters, a film that I, 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 was, I was surprised by my muted response with initially. I was just kind of like, that was all right. I liked it. But the more I thought about it, and especially you know, in terms of it being this really bleak, important story that deserves to be told and people should learn about um, I think it's an important film in that regard, but I think the way it's told, I was just like, it's yeah, that's pretty straightforward stuff coming from Todd Haynes, but I, I still appreciated it. And I still really loved Mark Ruffalo in it. And uh, yeah, it's a great film, um, but I'm still struggling with 
with whether or not I'll like it more in a second viewing. 22 is a surprise, but uh, I, I, I think you might agree with me on this one, Brad. Dr. Sleep. It was a surprise. Yeah. I was, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I do like Mike Flanagan. I think he's, he's has he made something I, I don't like? I don't think so. But like sequel to The Shining is yeah, a thing yeah, yeah. no one is asking for. Oh, that's what I thought. And I was like, even with the trailers, like, meh, maybe it'll be all right. And it, it turned out to be more than all right. Yeah, it, it helps to, to not compare it to True. Kubrick. Just like, you know, 2010 is actually a wonderful movie as long as you don't compare it to 2001. Good point, just, good point. Yeah. But it's one of the better Stephen King adaptations, I'd say, and all we've had in a long time. And uh, I was on board with this pretty much from the get-go with uh, Rebecca Ferguson as Rose the Hat. She's an incredible villain in this. Yes. And uh, there's a scene where her posse attacks a young boy that just like, what? <laughs> Left me really shaken. Uh, but once we return to the Overlook Hotel, I'm like, not, not as strong as all the other things that came before it. But uh, there's also a director's cut of this coming out, I think, within the month or next month or two, and I can't wait to see. So Dr. Sleep is number 22. Number 21 is uh, Jordan Peele's uh, latest film, Us. And uh, again, like I think this this suffers from a bit of a letdown with how things play out for me. Very similar to Get Out with just like um, the reveal of... Uh, the the one of the one of the guys who want to steal Daniel Kalula's just for his eyes and all that when that comes into play I was just like oh that's that's really what this ultimately leads up to okay and then once we get the just kind of like the exposition dump uh, of you know from Lupita Nyong'o's character on the chalkboard I was just kind of like hmm I don't know if I'm 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 hundred percent on board with that. Uh, but I do like the rhythm and the editing and the score and the acting. I mean, everything before that, I think, is pretty pretty spectacular. And it's something that I think about quite a bit. And uh, I anticipate everything from Jordan Peele at this point. Number 20 is The Souvenir. Um, I was not, I wasn't prepared for how kind of understated and free-flowing this felt. It was just like, it felt more like an experience than a story. It's just like you're observing a couple of lives that are slowly coming together in ways that are probably not very healthy, but they, they seem to find a connection and um, any, any sort of movie about addiction codependence I automatically speaks to me. And like I said earlier, um, I really like the performances in this and apparently there's going to be a sequel to this, which is surprising, um, but I'm really excited. Uh, number 19 is high life. And this is a really, hold on. I might need some water. Okay. Very good. Um, yeah, so High Life, a very good film. A fascinating, weird film. Um, this is Claire Denise working in the sci-fi genre, uh, tackling themes about parenting and nature versus nurture. And uh, like Patrick said, I love the opening scenes with Robert Pattinson, the baby. Um, there's a delightful fuck room sequence that uh, if you're a fan of Juliette Binoche will make you happy and disturbed. Um, I, I don't know what this what the ultimate thesis is. That's the thing about this one that I'm, I'm wrestling with. But uh, again, on a scene-to-scene basis, I think it's really powerful and really interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, it helps to be a fan of this director, but it's, 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 it's her first American film, right? Like, I think. English language film. English yeah. language film, yes, yes. And it's really good. Um, 18 is Pain and Glory, the latest from the great Pedro Almodovar. Um, I, don't, I haven't kept up with every single one of his films over the years, and I should because I'm a fan. Um, but I think the one th- thing that people have been saying about this in particular, and it's very true, is that this is probably his most personal to date. 
and uh, might be his best since Bad Education. Uh, it's uh, very autobiographical and similarly to The Irishman kind of says a lot about aging and the acceptance of like growing into a very tired and broken body because uh, it talks about like a lot of his, you know, almost like fibromyalgia like pain that he's experiencing as he's getting older and how he copes with that. Um, but it's a lot about memory, reflection, and then immortalizing the moments in your life through the art of storytelling. And uh, it has one of my very favorite final shots, and you'll know why when you see it. Um, 17 is Climax. Uh, I still haven't seen Love, but I'm a, I'm a Gasper Noe fan, even when his films are exhausting and, and dirty, and this one is no exception as it goes on. Um, it turns into like a little bit of a possession homage at one point. Well, you know, flannel, flannel around and all that stuff. But like like Patrick said, I just found the opening dance number to be absolutely breathtaking. And even as it gets weirder and darker and gross, I was uh, I was into it. I was totally on board. It's one of the more energetic films of the year. And I give it huge props for that. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, number 16 for me is A Hidden Life, the latest film from Terrence Malick. And I think this is definitely his best since The Tree of Life, uh, which should come as no surprise because I think most people would agree with that. I think... The reason being is that he's actually focused on telling a, a you know an A to B to C story more or less about um, a, a German farmhand who refuses to sort of bow down before the Hitler regime and fight their cause in any way, and therefore he's ostracized and then imprisoned. So it's it's really a question of time before they decide his ultimate fate, and we experience his in, uh, incarceration and the life that he's left behind back home. Uh, and so it's again as you'd expect from Malik, a meditation uh, of faith, belief, spirituality, what it means to die. And of course it has all the gorgeous cinematography that we're used to seeing in a Malik film. So it's really powerful in a way that I haven't experienced with a Malik film since tree of life. And he stopped with the improv that he's been doing for the last few films. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah definitely. And I think that helps. I think that helps tremendously here. Um, <clears throat> number 15 is a film that I'm surprised no one else is really talking about. It's called sunset and uh, it's from the director of son of Saul it's uh it's 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 absolutely riveting um, did it have a commercial release in chicago this year i believe so okay i hope so i had not heard of it mike d'angelo put it on his list for i believe last year or this year i can't remember but um it stars newcomer julie jacob um and she's basically supposed to inherit her family's hat shop right around the onset of world war one in budapest but of course there are these corporate monsters who want to keep it from her and there's also a subplot involving her long lost brother who's a political activist and she's trying to locate him while all this conflict is breaking out in the streets and uh so it's again it's a film about disorder and just like feeling that experience like the viewer experiences that disorientation so it's not a pleasant experience but it moves like a dream from scene to scene uh it has the same cinematography that son of saul had so like sort of dead on the person's face pretty much close up yeah or over the shoulder or yeah just pretty much with her the entire time so you're experiencing everything from her point of view um and i think someone someone at one point says to her like the horror of the world hides beneath all of these infinitely pretty things and it's really like an interesting film to watch in a very politically tumultuous time and uh it's it's really unnerving and anxiety inducing, but a really powerful film that uh, I think, you know, a lot of people should check out and find if they can. Uh, the only thing I wasn't too crazy about was like the paths of glory homage kind of at the end. I didn't think that that w was needed. 
Um, but other than that, it's it's a damn near flawless film. Number 14 is In Fabric, a Peter Strickland workplace comedy about a killer dress that uh, is a little bit Suspiria and just a little bit weird <laughs> throughout. But the sense of humor in this is something that I wasn't expecting from Peter Strickland. But um, I, He is the only person. Like, there's a ton of people right now who are sort of like fetishizing like Euro cult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love, the, the Love Witch stuff. kind of a stuff. Yeah. There's the lo- well, Love Witch. Yeah, Love Witch is, um, I don't know. Love, yeah, 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 Love yeah, Witch, yeah. but also, you know, like... Um, Oh gosh, I, there's a lot of this stuff now. It's not all kind of, but he's the only guy who has like a sense of humor about it. Sure, the people who did uh, let the bodies tan and stuff like that. As well. Oh like, yeah, and there's a couple other people who are operating in this uh, sort of space. Sure, but, but like you know, Duke of Burgundy has a sense of humor to it. So if I like this, should I watch the Strange Color of Your Body's Tears? Would I like that? Does that have a sense no. of humor? No. Oh okay. This I is thought, a different. That's a that's a okay. different filmmaker. I was I know, but I'm just saying. Like, is that in the same milieu of sorts? It is obsessively um, infatuated with Italian horror. Okay, okay, but it's like an extremely different kind of movie. Okay, yeah, I'm, I, still, I'm, I'm saying, still curious like, this, that's about what it. Separates, I'm, yeah, in fabric from yeah, but no, I mean like the sound design, a lot of the background banter, uh, as we mentioned, some of the dialogue, a lot of the dialogue is really funny. Uh, anytime there's like an interrogation scene with the two, uh, they're not cops. They're like human resources guys or something like that. They're really funny and sort of how it completely changes gears halfway really, uh, is really surprising. Cause, uh, you know, I, we follow mainly Marianne Jean Baptiste and then suddenly we don't. And it's one of the more jaw dropping experiences I've had in quite a while. Uh, so yeah, please seek that out. It's now unavailable on 4k if you have the Amazon too. Um, <clears throat> number 13 is portrait of a lady on fire. Uh, again, was not prepared for how simple and understated and soothing this love story ultimately becomes. And it, and it does pair nicely with the souvenir cause it involves like doomed love. And this time it's centered around the art of painting and certainly societal expectations and, um, just how some love isn't meant to evolve. It's just a series of moments and feelings that you feel with somebody else. And that's all it ultimately becomes. And uh, it's, it's, again, really about the set design, cinematography, the performances, and uh, really powerful individual scenes here. Really beautiful movie. Uh, has one of the very best images of 2019 involving a glance over a campfire. Um, there's a reason why that's kind of the main image of the film. It's a really great love story, and uh, I think a lot of people will get the chance to see this very soon. Number 12 is uh, a film I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say that... Uh, Patrick and I don't agree on necessarily, but uh, I, I find it one of the more perplexing and entertaining messes of the year, and that is Under the Silver Lake, the latest from David Robert Mitchell, a filmmaker I truly love, and uh, this manages to contain some of the weirdness of It Follows, but filters it through like an L.A. noir that is more like a messy inherent vice, and to me that's like Jim Nip. You know, uh, there's this weird commentary about hidden codes and secret messages contained in pop culture and how all that's kind of manifested by our obsessions with it and sort of fueled by our obsessions with it. And um, there's no denying that Andrew Garfield plays a really creepy jerk that uh, you don't really sympathize with. Uh, But um, it's like the point of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't bother. It doesn't bother me about the movie is that every single moment you see the protagonist, he's doing something terrible. Yeah. And it doesn't, and it didn't, didn't bother me. I think again, on a scene to scene basis, I was engaged and entertained and found it really funny at times. Um, 
I'm not going to actively defend it the way I would with something like Inherent Vice, but I, I think it's got a great score and really interesting visuals, and there's even uh, a hint of a cult towards the end. So once again, this is kind of a, a, another movie that I just thought was really you know, interesting in, in how messy it is, but uh, I, I, I continue to go back to it and find it interesting. And same with my f- uh, number 11, which, um, speaking of weird, last year at number 10, Patrick put a movie on his list that he wasn't sure I would like, and, well, it's number 11 on mine, and it's the latest from Chol Petrikas, which came out technically this year, I think, but you, you saw it at the uh, Cinepocalypse or something yeah. last year, yeah. Um, so I don't know What's how to... What's the name of the film, Jim? Oh, forgot. Sorry. I always do that. Relaxer. It's, uh, <laughs> it's really good. Um, it sort of reminded me that like, well, even if World War III happens, I can still find comfort, even if it's an unhealthy comfort, by sitting on the couch and consuming some form of pop culture to avoid the madness in order to maintain my own sanity. Uh, it's, it's definitely not always a pleasant experience by where this movie ultimately goes. Uh, he, it's gross, very gross Hell at times. Yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, but in ways that didn't gross me out, surprisingly. I, I, I thought that, you know, it, it, yeah, there's going to be a lot of fluids and a lot of weird shit going on, and there is that, but... There's the one particular thing at the end that really the, grossed me out. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see that. And uh, Maybe you're made of I, stronger stuff. Maybe. Maybe at the time I was just like, what the hell is it? What, what am I in for? And I was totally, totally all on board. I think Joel Petrikas and, and David Robert Mitchell are two very interesting filmmakers making Agreed. movies today. So. Agreed. I thought it was one of the more memorable movies made uh, this year. So uh, please check out Relaxer. It's now available on streaming everywhere. Brad! All right. My turn. So my number 25 might be higher on your lists. It's uh, Uncut Gems, which I don't think I love as much as everybody else does, but I, I certainly appreciate aspects of it. There's a uh, particularly suspenseful uh, scene regarding people being uh, locked behind a glass door. And it does deliver on that basis. And Adam Sandler does give uh, a great performance for Adam Sandler. But, <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. But he, but, but he was also a character that even as an anti-hero, I just really couldn't get behind. A lot of people feel that way. Yeah. yeah. No, that's true. Mm-hmm. But it, it, I'm definitely uh, glad I saw it, and it's a, it's a nice ride. At uh, number 24, I have Crawl, which is the uh, killer alligator movie of the year. And uh, just as far as a um, horror movie filled with jump scares, they're some of the most effective jump scares Hmm. I've seen in a while. I'm just like, okay, I know what you're doing, but somehow each time an alligator comes out of where they're coming out of, it got me. And it's got a nice, uh, you know, father-daughter uh, relationship in the plot. But mainly, it's it's just if you if you want killer alligators, it gives you killer alligators. Okay. Yeah. I'm mad I didn't see that movie. You should see it. It left Redbox too quickly. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> At number twenty-three is uh, High Life, the uh, Claire Denis movie. You guys were mentioning as well and it's uh one of the stranger movies mm-hmm. i've seen this year you mentioned uh, the fuck box which uh was interesting that every other time i've seen that in, in a film it's always been for comedic effect but 
It, Not like, this it's a, time. it like literally exists in um in Sleeper. Yeah, it's in Sleeper, the yeah. orgasmatron. Uh, first thing I yeah. wrote was the orgasmatron. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, it's about um you know, prisoner pr- death row prisoners uh in space on a suicide mission to a a black hole and everyone's really interesting. Robert Pattinson, who I'm just this year kind of discovering has some real chops was, oh, God, was great. Yes. But, uh, Juliette Binoche is a blast. She, she's, uh, just way over the top and, you know, sinking her teeth in, into this role as kind of the mad scientist. Yeah. I think she, at one point she's like, you think I'm a witch, don't you? Right. <laughs> and I'm like, well, 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's great. At number 22, the longest title of any uh, of my movies, uh, Rolling Thunder Review, a Bob Dylan story by Martin Scorsese. What? Oh, yeah. Yes, there was another Martin Scorsese movie this year. And um, it's great. You've got, first of all, a lot of archival footage of Bob Dylan at his most fierce. This is the tour in which he was... Uh, wearing kind of this uh, clown paint makeup and was uh, going through his divorce. So they're like, there's a lot of uh, anger and ferocity coming out of his performance. And then the rest of it is, is a mockumentary hmm. that without winking seems to be about Bob Dylan and his life and the tour, it, except it's all lies. They, they, they even, oh. they even feature a, and if, if you don't know, whenever Bob Dylan's being interviewed, most likely he's lying then as well. So right, you can't right. trust what Bob Dylan says, and you can't trust what this movie says, especially when a uh, fictional Robert Altman character uh, has a cameo. Okay. I might check that out. Yeah. Number 21, Spider-Man Far From Home. Well, that was uh, a lot of fun. It, it was. Uh, when we were talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think, Patrick, you referred to it as a hangout movie. And I think this Spider-Man movie is the Marvel hangout movie. It's yeah, it, it's kind of lower stakes and a little calmer than the epic stuff that they've basically <laughs> been doing. But it's just giving us time to just spend time with these characters we like interacting and uh, going through classic Spider-Man scenarios. And I thought it was really enjoyable. Yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal was having fun with that too. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Number 20, the last black man in San Francisco. This uh, movie uh, concerned me as it first started because I have kind of a love-hate relationship with the Wes Anderson (laughs) kind of uh, quirkiness style, and this definitely had some of that. But as it went on, it kept winning me over more and more because it's dealing um, with this young man's uh, obsession with uh, his uh, family home and the idea that... uh, it's really meant to be that this must be the home that he owns. Only he can take care of it properly. And it's one of the first movies of many we'll be uh, discussing that uh, deals with class issues. And it it deals with them here in in, in a very unique way. The interactions between characters are not always what you might expect them to be. Yeah. It almost feels like it was conceived of as a series of scenes exploring an idea than necessarily a story. Yeah, I agree with There's that. There's a lot of different yeah. disparate kind of approaches from moment to moment in the film, like the Wes Anderson thing you said, but then there's other parts it gets very raw and there's other parts that feel much more theatrical and 
There's yeah, that's that, that's how I took. Yeah, the movie didn't work for me uh, all the way through, but there were sure. enough scenes yeah. that 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 kind of grabbed me that were just like, okay, yeah, this is this is something meaningful that I, that I I think it's definitely worth seeing. It's kind of how I would feel how I feel about Jojo Rabbit. It's like mm. it's, it starts off with the Wes Anderson thingy too, and uh, has individual moments and scenes that I like, but it didn't really grab me emotionally. Right. At uh, number nineteen is Transit. Which is uh, Chris, oh, yeah. Christian uh, Petzold's uh, follow-up to the uh, wonderful uh, Phoenix from a couple years ago, and it has uh, a really interesting premise, which is that it's basically a World War II movie, but nobody is mentioned, and it's set in present day. So, mm. as we are heading into uncertain times a movie like this becomes uh, pretty important because it uh you know it shows how very thin the line is between you know what has happened and, and what could happen so you know plot wise there's a, there, there's a lot of similarities to uh, Casablanca and there's a uh, wonderful uh, lead performance uh from uh Franz Rogowski who uh, actually uh, is a dancer who they uh, put in the lead role here. It's very good. Yeah, he shows yeah. up very briefly in The Hidden Life, too. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. At number 18 is Waves, which is um, a really interesting film because uh, its style and its content don't necessarily seem to match. It's basically a coming-of-age film, but it's a coming-of-age film with a lot going on visually, the oh, camera yeah. is going everywhere. There's especially in the first half. Yeah. Oh, especially in the first half, there's strange lights everywhere. Yeah. And the first half, actually, I, I wouldn't have made my list if it were just the first half because I, I started thinking of it as a this is the greatest after school special <laughs> I had ever seen because it just kept piling on like everything that could happen to a teenager possibly. Yeah. But then there's a second half and we switch uh, focus from one character to another and it starts to explore themes of forgiveness in a really touching and impactful way. Yeah, it was number 26 on my list. Very powerful coming yeah, like you mentioned coming of age story that yeah, it does feel like two different movies but you know, felt a little jarring for me a little bit mm-hmm. but I think mostly in a good way, especially the performances really right. stood out. And the other interesting great thing, score too. The un- oh yeah, definitely a great score. Trent Reznor. Yeah. Uh, the other interesting thing they do is they keep changing aspect ratios. So right, right. at various points in the film, you're watching a widescreen film, then you're watching a full screen, and then the combination of the two. Yeah. So yeah, way better used in that than in Lucy in the Sky, which is another one of the worst movies of the year oh, or boy. high life for that yeah. matter. Oh, they do the aspect the thing beginning of the movie for no reason whatsoever. There's a scene or two on earth that are shot in uh, four, three. I didn't even notice that. Uh, the, the best movie I've seen use that trick is from a, a couple of years ago called uh, mountains made to part. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Chinese film. Yeah. I should see that at uh, number 17. Jim, you mentioned it, uh, Dr. Sleep, Woo-hoo. which, uh, you know, is is part of the uh, current year's uh, or last year's King of Sons when everything Stephen King was yeah. happening. And uh, Mike Mike Flanagan uh, really does horror well, especially in the TV series Haunting of Hill House. And um, li- like we said before, you can't come in thinking, oh, this is going to be a movie as good as The Shining or, or any... Or, it's not even trying to do that except for uh, uh, at the end when you have 
some fan service that's actually kind of fun, but better than the ending is is the lead up as it really establishes uh, both more of the mythology of what it means to have the shining. And also this uh, this group of villains called uh, the True Knot, who are kind of oh, like right. yeah. shining vampires. And uh, you mentioned that Rebecca Ferguson just is Ooh. really cool as Rose the Hat. Yeah. So uh, yeah, fun horror film there. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, uh, Les Miserables, uh, the uh, Lodge Lai uh, film that uh, uh, came from France. I saw it at the uh, Chicago Film Festival. And it's uh, basically a uh, police drama about uh, corruption and, uh, you know, what happens when police, uh, police brutality meets modern technology. And uh, it's, it, it's well worth seeing. It's got kind of an epic view of the uh, of life in Paris and and very loosely tries to connect it to the ideas in in the Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Hmm. All right, as I turn the page, we get to my number 15 choice, which is uh, Pain and Glory Yay. from uh, Pedro Almodovar. And uh, it, it's wonderful. It is for Al Moldovar, a, a, a subdued film, although absolutely beautiful and centered by just the, by far the best acting I've ever seen from Antonio Banderas. It's for sure. really effective. It's, it's really emotional. It's apparently very close to the, the director's own story. And you could just, you know, tell how much this story means to him. Mm -hmm. Number 14, Knives Out. Ryan Johnson's uh, whodunit. And it it works like gangbusters as a whodunit. It's just a lot of fun in the way that you expect from the genre. There's a lot of laughs. Um, Daniel Craig is... Pretty hysterical as uh, as the Southern Fried Detective, and everybody's kind of got their moment. And then there's uh, also a little bit of a class conscience uh, uh, subtext uh, underneath the whole yeah. thing that yeah, that, that sure. makes it you know resonate a little more. Number thirteen. I, I'm I'm sorry, Jim. It's it's the Joker. No, <laughs> sorry about that. There's the door. I know. It, we're 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 done. Uh, it's okay. It's on, but, I'll forgive uh, you just this time. It does look. Look, it has its problems. My my favorite um, quote about it was from a review that said, "It's like a baby's first taxi driver," and it does. <laughs> borrow a lot from Mr. Scorsese and Mr. Fincher, but I, I got to give it a, a few things. First of all, the, uh, the performance from Joaquin Phoenix, I think is epic. Even if the script is kind of repetitive and, and not going as far as I would have liked to see, he is mesmerizing throughout. So I found myself you know, you know, kind of the opposite of, uh, you know, with Uncut Gems, I couldn't really follow Adam Sandler. But even though he's playing, you know, the Joker, I'm, I'm following, you know, Joaquin Phoenix because of what he's doing acting-wise. I thought the movie uh, looked great, created a, uh, uh, a wonderful environment 
for that. And then again, brought in this issue uh, that we're seeing again and again in the films of nine of, of 2019 of the haves and the have nots. And, you know, what, <laughs> what happens in, in fiction that we're seeing in real life when uh, billionaires uh, are getting richer and richer and regular people sure. are, are just not. And, and I think other movies might address this better, but I think mm-hmm. the Joker has, a really interesting take on it. And I, I liked the way it, uh, you know, in the end tied itself into the Batman mythos. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'll let you like it. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. At number 12 is shadow, which is the latest hmm. uh, film from the great Chinese director, uh, Zhang Yamu, who uh, you might know from movies like hero and, um, Oh, um, okay. Curse of the Flying... No, no, what's it called? Curse of the Flying Daggers? House. House. Of, House. House. Thank you. House of the Flying Daggers, uh, Curse of the Golden Flower. That's In right. any yes, case, yes. Th- this is a man known for his incredible use of color in, uh, in sword fight films and in, in action. Hmm. He does something very special here. He takes the color away. This is a film that's entirely in black and white. Not that it's filmed in black and white. It's, it's desaturated, but it's, it's filmed in color. But every set, every costume, every prop, everything we see is a shade of black and white. So the action hmm. sequences, oh, oh, also it's always raining. And the action sequences absolutely take on a unique uh, perspective Due to uh, due to the way it's being filmed, maybe a little similar to uh, Sin City and, and the way that looked, but it looks less well, computer generated. Is it so? Are the so is are the sets also painted black and white? Yes, everything that uh, are, like like are there natural settings where the trees are painted black and white. They might be uh, either computer generated or uh, backdrops. Okay. Uh, but yes, everything that is not human flesh or human blood is pretty much rendered in black and white. Huh. And the the action sequences, as he is known for, are extraordinary. And just, you know, when you see them training with umbrellas, some very cool things are going to happen with umbrellas. A letterbox review just says, Blade Umbrellas, Blade Umbrellas, Blade Umbrellas. That's yeah, the, that's, that's the whole that, review. That's it but, it's okay. even, it, it, but it. but it's even cooler than it sounds. All right, all right. Yeah, that sounds fun. All right, my number 11, I really want to put a pin in because I think it's going to be very hard for people to find and people to see, but it is so worth seeking out. It's called uh, La Llorona, or The Weeping Woman, and it hmm. should not be confused. There, there's yeah, actually another movie the this curse. year called La yeah, <laughs> with the, the, cur- the, the Curse of, of La Llorona. And that movie's terrible. That is not what I am referring to gotcha. at all. That, I think, is part of the Conjuring series. It sure is. This is a, uh, a horror film from Guatemala uh, based on, I believe, the same uh, South American uh, folktale that has been uh, told any number of times in in Latin films. This time, it's told extraordinarily well. It's basically a ghost story about a brutal dictator who has uh, committed a genocide against his own people, and the dead are not content to stay dead. 
in this situation. I, after, oh. after it was over, I thought to myself, can we get one of those over here? That's a similar plot to <laughs> Atlantics. Did you see that yet? I didn't see that one. Yeah, it's a little similar. I didn't see that one, but this this one, uh, tone-wise, and kind of, uh, I'd compare it <laughs> most to uh, Guillermo del Toro's The Devil's Backbone. Ooh, okay. And so I'd say that if, if you're a fan of that movie, this is particularly uh, a must-see. Wow. These are some great films of 2019, guys. Especially The Joker, right, Jim? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's okay. Do you want to read some more great films that listeners have sent in? Yes, and then we'll take another quick break. Okay. Um, I believe you got Kurt Halfyard right here, Jim. I, he's right here in the room? Yes, oh. you have Kurt Halfyard in your pocket. Wow. If only we all could. If only we could have Kurt Halfyard in our pocket. Well, we can now with the Stitcher Radio app. Hi, everybody. I'm Patrick <laughs> Fuller. I'd like to talk to you about Stitcher Radio. No, go ahead. Kurt Halfyard, formerly of the Cinecast, but uh, this is a show that returns sporadically and... Uh, I highly recommend you stay subscribed, even though it's a show that's like comes out twice a year now. Number 10 on his list is The Mountain. Number nine is The Art of Self-Defense. Hmm. Number eight is uh, <laughs> Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Oh, are we supposed to be making disapproving noises every time we didn't like the choice? I, I can't go, help I it. I need to go back and make a noise. Over it's like a tick. Yeah. Um, number eight is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Number seven is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number six is Marriage Story. Number five is Honeyland. Number four is Parasite. Number three is Uncut Gems. Number two is The Lighthouse. Number one, oh, Beanpole. I have a list here from Brian Piet who says, Happy 2020 to my favorite podcast. Oh, it's thanks. been so nice since nearly, oh, and has <laughs> been since nearly the beginning. We haven't been nice. Um, please continue for as long as possible since the show gets me through the day while struggling with a lot of pain. My choice for number one is a personal one, having gone through a breakup this year. Mm -hmm. So his number 10 is Midsummer. <laughs> number nine <laughs> is Uncut Gems. His number eight is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. His number seven is Parasite. His number six is In Fabric. His number five is Crawl. Number four is Toy Story 4. All hail Forky, he says. Uh, number three is Knives Out. Number two is Little Women. And number hey. one is The Souvenir. All right. My list is from Matt Miller from Santa Cruz. As of this list, I've seen 15 movies that have come out this year, but here are his 10. Number 10, The Laundromat. Number 9, Knives Out. 8, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. 7, Homecoming. Is that the Beyonce movie? Is or that what that is? I think it is. Hmm. I think. 6, High Flying Bird. 5, Little Women. 4, Us. 3, The Irishman. 2, The Farewell. And at number 1, Parasite. Wow. 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 Let's break. Wow. 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 Fins and everything. Wow. Speaking of wow, here is the uh, latest from Bruce Springsteen, Brad's choice of the best song of 2019 with Tucson Train. Please stay tuned, everybody. There is a part two. If you want to hear our top 10 films of 2019, you better go download that next. See you there. I got so down and out in Frisco, tired of the pills and the rain. I picked up pity for the sunshine. I left the good thing behind. It seemed all of our love was in vain. 
soundtrack. 